What's up, guys? JD here. And on today's show, I am talking with an old friend, a longtime friend, Kunal Gupta, the legend himself, Kunal Gupta. Kunal is an author today. He is an entrepreneur. He's an investor. You can check out his book called How to Live, How to Live. And also check out his AI. You can get inside Kunal's brain at kunalgpt.com. This guy, I mean, I actually have a hard time even introducing him because he does so much from biohacking. He's an AI dude. He's a entrepreneur. He's an investor. He's got so many amazing stories. He's, I don't know, probably had six different identities, just sort of lifestyle since I've known him. So he's someone I've looked up to for a long time, actually. He's a peer of mine. We're around the same age, but he just always from early days as an entrepreneur always seemed to have it together to be the leader, a truly inspiring guy. And I'm so glad to have him on the podcast today. I think you guys are going to really love this conversation. And we'll get to that in just a second. Before we do, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify. I read all the reviews. I really appreciate it. Of course, go to johndavids.com and get on my email list. I got my book coming out in 2024. Get on the email list so you know when it drops. Of course, follow me across social. And now, let's get to my conversation with Kunal Gupta. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Kunal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. So this is a long time coming. I've known you for 15 years, maybe give or take. And I'm trying to think about the perfect way to describe you. Because today, if I met you today, I would say you are a gentleman, author, entrepreneur, living a wonderful life. But when I first met you, you were, I mean, you were a young hustler, a young entrepreneur. You were organizing every event that I went to. Why don't you give people, and we'll go into more detail, give, give us the one-minute summary of, of how you would describe yourself. Born and raised in Canada, met John, felt, got inspired and encouraged, <laughs> studied engineering at the University of Waterloo, started a tech company in Toronto before it was cool for young people to start companies, grew that as CEO for 15 years, moved to Portugal during the pandemic, wanting a break. I'd moved to New York at some point um, in that 15-year journey as well, and been happily living in Portugal, writing books, investing in companies, going to the beach, working on my health, learning Portuguese, and catching up with longtime friends like you. You are nothing if not humble, my friend, and, uh, and, and very generous. So let's unpack that a little more. You started, when did you start? What was the first company you started? And how old were you when, when you, when you did that? Well, the first company was was when I was thirteen, and then I started working in my <laughs> way, way family's business. Yeah, family's businesses when I was six, so thirty eight. So I've got thirty years, thirty plus years of business experience, and sometimes I feel it, and a couple of gray hairs to 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 show it. But the first real company that I started that makes money uh, is called Polar Mobile. It was in two thousand and seven. It's before the iPhone existed. The Canadians listening to this remember this device called the BlackBerry. It was in those days, BlackBerry was actually the most valuable company in Canada at that moment. Again, pre-iPhone, pre-Android, pre-3G networks. And uh, that company went on and continues to this day, and I I still own the company. Many chapters, many pivots, many iterations. It's called Nova today. I'm not CEO anymore. 
but that was uh, that was when I started. And the BlackBerry, I mean, everybody knows the BlackBerry. The BlackBerry launched, when, when, when did it launch? I'm trying to see here. Is it like 1999 it launched? So it goes way back. And you were there for the kind of from the inception all the way to present day. As you said, you're not part of the company anymore, but the company lives on. And what was the kind of spark? Obviously, you were a, a young entrepreneur from a very, very young age. But like, what was the spark of, okay, I'm a 20-year-old and I'm going to start a company now? I went to Waterloo for school, very entrepreneurial, very innovative, but I looked around and, and young people weren't starting companies. The, the culture towards entrepreneurship wasn't a positive one. And Canada was actually still suffering from a brain drain back then. It's a brain gain now. There's net inflow of talent into Canada, but at the time there was a net outflow. So my peers, the other students, they're all taking jobs in the US. And I said, I don't really want to go to the US. And I decided I want to start a company. I wanted to work for myself. I didn't really care what the idea was. And that's one of my pieces of advice to entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs. I don't think the idea matters as much as we think it does. Um, we had lots of ideas, me and classmates, and we had this idea for an app on a phone. And we said, these devices will be more than communication devices, they'll be consumption devices. And it turns out we were right. So we went on to build software to make it easy to consume content on your phone. And that was the idea? That was the idea. That people are going to consume content on their phones, and fast forward like seventeen years, it's happened. Turns out they do <laughs> a little, a little too much actually. <laughs> and at the same time, when I met you, you had this thing called Impact, right? So, what what was Impact, and how did that start? Impact was started twenty years ago. It's a nonprofit, and it was with this vision that young people should be entrepreneurial and should have entrepreneurship as an option. 20 years ago, the culture towards entrepreneurship was, was negative. It was seen as like you couldn't get a job, so you decided to go start a company. It was seen as a school of last resort, which is fascinating where today it's up on a pedestal and, and young people look up to entrepreneurs and want to be entrepreneurs. 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. So we started an organization, a nonprofit, and I was 18 years old. And we started to organize events and conferences. And Impact went on for 10 years as a nonprofit impacting tens of thousands of students across the country every year through dozens of events. And it's probably one of the proudest chapters of my adult life. We really did leave a, a mark on Canada and the culture. And once that culture had shifted, we decided to, to close the organization because the mission was accomplished. Did you start that yourself? Was it a big group of you that started it? Yeah, so I was the founder and I recruited classmates and my sister and my high school best friend and anybody I could grab. And by the third year, we had a team of 80 volunteers from across the country. We had a dozen conferences and programs. I was 20 years old. So there's a lot of responsibility. I learned a lot around leadership, a lot around sales. So pretty much every major accounting firm, law firm, all the service providers to entrepreneurs, but companies like Google and IBM and BlackBerry and others were sponsoring us, worked with the universities, probably had four to 500 speakers a year. So that really built my network at the age of 20. And all of that, I didn't realize it, but it built my toolkit to then go launch a business right out of school at 21 and hit the ground running. Yeah, one early memory I have of you, and you're not going to know this, but it's etched in my brain, is we were at a, some event together. It was a morning. It was one of those like 7.30 a.m. breakfast type events. And Mike Lazardis was there, one of the co-founders of BlackBerry. 
And you just walked up to him and started chatting. And then at the end, I remember he said, hey, like, I'll talk to you soon. And I thought this was the coolest thing ever because he was like a legend. You know, this is the one of the executives of BlackBerry, one of the biggest companies in the world at the time, defining a category. And I was like, damn, this guy's a baller. Like you, you knew everybody. And I think we'll come back to this theme as we talk now. But like one of your superpowers in my mind is that you just, you know how to rally people and a lot of people. And just like, you you are the leader of the pack. Like I see you as the guy with the cane and the white beater at the front of the line and all the people are just following you. Is that something you noticed early on or is that something that just kind of happened? Did you just age me with like a white beard and a, and a cane? <laughs> it's like you're, you're triggering my... For some reason, I don't know you're why. triggering my worst nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I definitely felt excited to be around people. I I put my hand up for student government when I was 10 years old. And I spent, actually before Impact, I spent 10 years in student government. And that's a big deal in Canada and the US. Every class rep elects a representative and they have a voice and they have a budget and they organize school events and stand up for the student population to the principal and the teachers and advocate for rights and I I was that guy. I was that student. I was the student government geek. I was president of my high school. So I was I learned very early and probably ahead of uh, my peers on on how to speak in front of an audience, how to take an idea and communicate it in a way that resonates with people around me. And I guess I still do that to this day. You were at my place a few weeks ago at at Web Summit and there were a lot of people moving through my my home that week, and actually last night my place was my place is a bit of a mess right now because there was a bunch of people here last. There's like twenty people here last night, <laughs> so it continues. It, it's it's who you are. So let's fast forward now. We you have ten years. Actually, there's one, one more piece of the polar story I want to ask. So early on, like you said, you were in a culture where. It wasn't cool to be an entrepreneur. And people, you know, who are sort of growing up in the entrepreneurship world today will find that hard to believe. But like it was taboo. It was like, oh, you can't get a job, so you're gonna be an entrepreneur back in the early two thousands. And so you not only were an entrepreneur, but you were raising funding, which which was not hard. It's never easy, but like you were raising, I remember you had a round that was six million or seven million bucks. That's when I that was, you know, in the newspaper that I saw. What were you doing that worked early on? Like you made it sound like you just kind of started a business, but like it worked at some point because you ended up raising money, hiring a lot of people, doing big deals. What did you latch on to? Or, or was it just more like right place, right time? I was desperate to prove myself. And coming from the son of immigrants, parents had nothing, grew up okay, but I come from a business family, like a traditional business family, and I was desperate to prove myself and dog with the bone type attitude. So the first two years of business were actually really hard. We were a little too early and too inexperienced. And so we, on the outside, like we were in the press, like I was in the Globe and Mail or like news like every two weeks because they didn't have anybody else to talk about because nobody else was starting companies that was under 40. I'm like, here's a 21 year old. But it was hard behind the scenes. Like we ran out of money twice, missed payroll twice. People were quitting, clients were leaving. Like we had no idea what we were doing, but I stuck with it. So that's kind of what worked is myself and the others involved. We, we didn't give up and we persevered and we eventually learned how to build a product that works. We learned how to sell it to clients. We learned how to raise money. We learned how to market the products. We learned how to be profitable. And that took a couple of years. 
Uh, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen instantly. So fast forward, at some point it starts to work and you're growing, growing, growing. What was the venture experience like? You know, you raised venture capital, you you didn't sell, like you didn't have a, an acquisition, a traditional, hey, we're going out and selling for $200 million to Google. That didn't happen. Was that something that was pressuring you? Did you, if you look back now, did you play the venture capital game right or should you have done something different? I did it all on the fundraising side. I have a new book that'll come out next year called Chief Everything Officer. And there's, I just drafted this chapter actually, so it's top of mind. But I raised angel money, um, probably, you know, about 15 to 20 investors over three rounds. We had VC money, we raised private equity raised debt from a traditional bank, did buyouts. Like I did absolutely every type of asset class you can do over the 15-year journey. So I, I learned a lot. I'd say... And, what, what and, I, and sorry, Kunal, why was that? Did, was that because you were just desperate for cash or was that because strategically you wanted to just level up the, the, the type of money? Business and entrepreneurship is not a linear path. And it's often in a lot of business books and entrepreneurial classrooms, it's like you get to like A and B and then C and D. My experience is not that. Uh, the business is zig and zag and twist and turn. And that's probably the key to my success is being adaptable. So at a certain point, we were on the, the, the VC route. At a certain point, we were on the profitability route. At a certain point, we were on the, the bank debt route. And the path the business is on today is I co-own the company with a, a PE firm, and that's the route that we're on now. So the, the road kept evolving, and that's what actually has led to it being successful, quite successful today, is being able to adapt to what's needed versus some predefined playbook or formula. And that's the fun part of entrepreneurship, and that's my approach is to make my own formula versus follow somebody else's formula. That's an OG entrepreneur, is somebody who wants to come up with their own formula. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah, the, the irony that I always find in people that consume so much concept content about entrepreneurship is that the people that are making that content, the real ones that are actually doing the work, are not following entrepreneurship content. <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing the work, they're adapting. They might be reading you know, and looking at things for references of what, what are my options, but they're not looking for a path to go down because, hey, that path that worked for somebody else, like I can tell you exactly how I did it. You can tell you exactly how you did it. It's going to be very hard for someone to replicate that because the circumstances change, personalities change. Can you talk about, and you can go into as much or as a little detail as you want here, but how did you evolve? Like what's the short version of the path from venture back company at 20 to now you co-own this business with a PE firm? complicated, <laughs> very complicated, <laughs> and at times stressful. You know, at times in the journey, I had high conviction on the business, and at other times I had low conviction. And that's, that's the honest truth. And I don't think uh, an Meaning entrepreneur... you didn't believe the company would make it, or you didn't believe in the stuff you were selling? I didn't believe in the growth prospects. I didn't think we were going to hit the plan, or I, did, I thought the business is doing okay, but other businesses in our space are probably better, or I could do something better, you know, in, in, a, in another company. So my conviction level keeps going up and down. And then at times when it was up, then I leaned in and was willing to take on more risk. And at times when it was, you know, low, then I leaned back and asked other people to share the risk with me. 
So really it's come down to like, what's my conviction level? What's my belief on the business? And I think that's an important like introspective question for any entrepreneur. It's, it's not to say like, okay, at all times, my conviction is 10 out of 10. I did the job for 15 years. My conviction was not 10 out of 10 for 15 years solid. And you know, you've, you've been an entrepreneur just as, as, as long, and I'm sure you've had the same journey. So being honest with ourselves of actually my conviction is like four out of 10 right now. So maybe I need to take some chips off the table. Maybe I need to de-risk this. Or my conviction is like 10 out of 10. Let me go all in. Let me take more risk and capture more upside. It's important to, it's like, it's like playing, I guess, poker or it's playing, playing a game based on the information you have. You need to adjust the strategy. And the other piece of that, that I, that I have felt, and I know a lot of others, and I don't think you realize this until you kind of really get, get into it, is at a certain point as an entrepreneur, you're running a business for five, seven, 10 years, you might feel like you're no longer in a vehicle that is worthy of your potential. And so I'm in this thing that I started five years ago. If I was starting fresh today, would I start this same thing? No, I wouldn't. So why am I still doing this thing? Couldn't I you know, take myself out and do something else. And that's, that's a real interesting thought that I've had, oh, you know, over the, over the last 20 years that I've been an entrepreneur. And it sounds like you kind of had the same thought. Several times. And <laughs> I think that, I think the question to ask is like, would I, would I take a job for this company as CEO with this comp, this equity package? Like, would I say yes? Or would I invest cash and we really have cash along the journey, but would I invest cash into this business? Do I think it's a good investment? And there's so many times where the answer is like, no, I wouldn't put cash into this company or like, I wouldn't take the CEO job at that equity and pay package. But then here I am like in that job with that pay package and, you know, my investment, you know, locked into the company. So it's a, it's a very sobering exercise. The next question that follows though, is like, what would the company have to look like for me to say yes? And then, okay, what would it look like for, what is it going to take for me to take the company to that stage? hundred percent. And you, you, you just, that is the light that, that I saw you and I have a similar path of where our companies went and the light that I saw that made me feel better. And that pushed me forward was, okay, so this is the hand I have. There's a place I want to be where I'm not today, but I can do whatever I want. You know, if you're, if you're the CEO of a company and you have a certain amount of control, you know, you, you can make that company, whatever you want it to be. You just have to will it forward. And, 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 you know, as we said earlier, bring people with you, which you're very good at. Yeah. I mean, I spent 14 of the 15 years dissatisfied. Like I spent 14 of the 15 years, not happy, like fundamentally not happy, not in agreement. And the, the, in the, in the, with, frankly, with the last, with what not in agreement with what? Just the business and how the business is being received in the market with the performance of the business. Like I was dissatisfied until I wasn't. And then when I wasn't, it was like, okay, I'm really satisfied now, satisfied with what we built. And then time to bring in a new CEO who can take it to a different stage. I've taken it as far as I can. I'm going to stay on as a big shareholder. So I'll get the benefits of what I built, but I think somebody else can do a better job than me. And I'm also tired. So how long ago was it that you uh, gave up the reins of CEO of now Nova? So it was a three-year succession planning process. I, uh, there's a chapter on this in the book too, um, about how to fire yourself. And what I learned was that hiring, so in a, in a startup, in a company that's growing and, and shrinking, which we did up and down, the CEO is really a chief everything officer and somebody who's willing to play like every hat and put on every hat. 
And hiring a chief everything officer is really hard to do, and it's not really fair, and it doesn't make sense to try to hire somebody who's a generalist who could put on every hat. They don't have the equity to be motivated to do so. If they really can do that, then they should just go start their own company. They're not going to come work for me. So over the course of three years, I hired a chief revenue officer who is better than me at building and growing sales and sales teams. I hired a chief financial officer who is better at me than managing the administrative, financial, and even corporate aspects of the company. We promoted somebody into a senior product and engineering role. And then we hired a CEO as a chief executive officer, somebody who could actually do that job without having to do everybody else's job, which was what I was doing previously. So it took three years to get all of these roles in place and get them working well. And the current CEO, he was, he was president for a good year, solid year before he was made CEO. So it was a very gradual, thoughtful, deliberate process. A lot of attention is paid in, in entrepreneurship to like, hey, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be a hustle. It's supposed to be a grind. The reality is it's supposed to be like that while you're in a startup phase and you want to get out of startup phase as fast as you can. But being a startup is so sexy in our culture that people think they should just be in that mode forever. The faster you can get, as you described it, to the point where you actually have leaders running their teams there's plenty of cash coming in the door to pay for all those people. And then you can take yourself out of the equation, put a CEO in. You can now own Nova and have all the benefits of it without having to spend one minute of your time on it every day because it's actually not a startup. It's a functioning company. Yeah, Nova's, Nova's a large company, 300 clients, teams in nine countries. So it's, it's a mature business. It takes a lot to get it to that stage. And that's what I've, I've learned. I think... Everybody's good at different stages of a company. So there's the zero to one stage, which you're talking about the hustle and the grind. There's the one to 10 stage, which is we got something that kind of works, an MVP, product market fit in time to grow it. And then there's the 10 to 100 stage, which is scaling it. Leaders, including you know the founder or CEO, they're rarely good at all three stages. I'd say above average at the zero to one stage. I'm average at the one to 10 stage, and I'm below average at the 10 to 100 stage. So. It took me a while to learn that and then starting to bring in people who are above average at each stage at the right moments. And that involves a lot of changes and that takes a lot of work. So at some point you move into this role, I want to say gentleman farmer, but you're not a farmer. You're, you're, you're a gentleman author. You're a, you're a man of the people. You are living amongst uh, a, a new, you're in a new country. You kind of reinvented yourself. You've reinvented yourself like six times since I've known you. So this is like the latest reinvention, but describe what your life is today. I wake up without an alarm clock, which is a luxury. I meditate and we didn't talk yet about meditation, but meditation has been a 10 year chapter in my life and teaching it as well. So meditate and journal every morning. And by this point, I haven't looked at my phone. I haven't consumed any, any information. I'll have, I'm focusing on my morning routine here because it's so precious and it really sets me up. I'll have a solid liter of like a herbal tea. And I got really into Chinese medicine and it's just good for the kidneys and livers and the organs. Even in hot Portugal, I'm drinking tea in the summer when I first wake up and it helps me with energy level. And then I'll get ready and eat. And then it's been, I've been up for like an hour and a half or two hours before I even look at my phone or log in online. And by that point, I've sorted through all the mental noise and I'm very clear and my body feels good. I've done some exercise usually. 
and ready to go with the day. What time without an alarm clock do you normally wake up? It's between six and seven. Uh, I'd like it to be earlier, but Southern Europe has a later culture. Like my house was full of people last night and it was like around 10.30. I started kicking people out and by 11.30, everybody was finally gone. <laughs> so you wake up and... Well, let, let, well, let's get into meditation now because this is, as you said, a 10-year journey. I really sort of um, learned about your meditation journey. I guess it was during COVID. You were running these remote meditation sessions, right? It was March 16th, like, like the day that the Canada-US border got shut down. I, I was living in New York full-time. I just got back to Canada for a few weeks to check in on my parents. And I was like, oh, like the world is turned upside down. So <clears throat> I messaged a bunch of friends saying, I'm doing a meditation at 9.30 a.m. Here's my Zoom link. And then 20 people showed up. It's just 20 minutes. And they're like, okay, see you tomorrow. I'm like, what? Okay, I guess we're doing this tomorrow. <laughs> and that went on for all of 2020. And a couple thousand people you know, participated in these morning meditations. I went to a few of them. I, I had a I had a newborn baby when that happened, so I wasn't. Uh, it was tough to get uh, you know a, a meditation session going on, but it helped a lot. And how did meditation? Was this again a family thing, or you started meditation when you were, I guess, in the thick of of like business building? So how how did that enter your your world? It was it was a moment. It was ten years ago, so before meditation was cool. And it was a moment where I had gotten to the top of a mountain I'd been climbing. My, my personal life was, was set. I was healthy. I had great friends like you around. I was in a relationship. We were living together. I was physically well. My parents were close by. My sister was nearby. And professionally, the business was actually working for once. The product worked. Business was profitable. Clients were happy. Team was happy. So I kind of checked every box at that moment that was important to me. I was 28, yet I didn't feel successful. I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel satisfied. And I expected to because I had achieved everything that I was trying to achieve at that moment. And that was the moment I was triggered to look inwards. Quick break so I can tell you about DemandScope. DemandScope is a performance marketing agency that helps you acquire new customers, keep them hooked, and scale profitably. Google ads, Instagram ads, TikTok ads, landing pages, email, and more. There are so many ways to get customers today, but if you're not doing it right, you'll end up blowing a whole bunch of money. And that's why I launched DemandScope. We're here to make sure you're doing it right. Get more customers today and scale effectively. Learn more at demandscope.co. That's demandscope.co. And I started to read some books and the principles of meditation and mindfulness started to speak to me. And it's less about meditation. It's more about like looking at myself. And meditation's been a very helpful tool for me to understand myself. And was it something that you had to, did you read books? Did you have an instructor? Did you just go on YouTube University and figure it all out? So I did a few courses. I used a few of the meditation apps that are, are common today and, and well-known. I definitely read you know, books. I looked at documentaries. I started surrounding myself with other, I mean, I basically did everything. Like, <laughs> I, was, I was really curious about it and really interested. But it wasn't easy I meditated every day. I still have for the last 10 years, been meditating every day. And the first 500 days were painful. They were really painful because I expected my mind to be calm. 
and quiet. And it was anything but calm and quiet. It was like 5 p.m. rush hour traffic, <laughs> regardless of what time I sat down to meditate. It was loud and there were honks, honking and sirens and here to there to there. And I felt like I was failing, like I didn't know what I was doing and something was wrong with me. And then I realized that like meditation isn't about stopping my thoughts or controlling my thoughts. It's not about going to the, feeling like I'm going to the spa and relaxing. It's more like going to the gym and getting a workout and like tensing and watching what's happening versus trying to change what's happening. And that attitude shift totally changed how I saw my meditation practice and when my mind is noisy, which is every single day, I don't get bothered by that. So when the rest of my day is noisy or the world around me is noisy, I also don't get bothered by that. So when did the, the blogging and the how to live portion, which of course is the name of your book and your blog, how, when did that enter the, uh, the Kunal universe? I was journaling, started a practice called Morning Pages, which is a very specific journaling practice that involves writing without stopping and throwing it out after you're done. And some of the ideas that I came upon, I thought, oh, I actually want to share some of these. And being the engineer that I am and obsessed with efficiency, I realized it's just more way more efficient to just publish something online and send a link to people versus having one-on-ones with everyone and repeating the same stories. So it started as a monthly blog with something that I've just found myself repeating often to friends. And that turned into a newsletter. And then today it's, you know, I think 40, 50,000 people get a weekly Sunday morning reflection from me. And it's something from the last week or two weeks that provoked me to look within. And I, it's a ritual. I really enjoy it. And when did that turn into a book? When did you become an author? So I became an author recently, this year, in 2023. However, I've been thinking about a book for the last five years. And uh, How to Live, which is the name of my, my first book, has been a collection of experiments I've done on life. And these are stories that I felt along the last five years, they're just too good to put on my blog. And I want to save them for the book. So I wrote the book very quickly over the summer. And I had an editor and I had other people to support me and guide me. And it includes all the stuff that I've been saving for the book. So it's the best stories of my adult life. It's a 10-year personal memoir going from the moment of waking up and starting to look within to really the moment I moved to Portugal. And you have said to me that you want to keep writing books and write a lot more books. So what's, what's your whole theory on like book writing in general? I think as humans, expression and creativity is, is a core aspect of who we are. And I can express to my journal, I can express to my therapist, I can express to you as a close friend, I can express on social media, but there's rarely much depth to that. But to express something long form, written, that will outlive me, it's the ultimate form of expression, which is very fulfilling and satisfying for me as a human is this desire to be heard and desire to be seen. And in the act of expressing, it's obviously very vulnerable. It's very vulnerable to put it in written word in long form. It's not like an Instagram story that's going to disappear in 24 hours. Like I will die one day and my book won't. <laughs> my books will carry on and they will be the defining assets of me. 
It's so true. I'm, I'm in the process of writing my first book now. And one of the things I heard another author say, which is, if you die with knowledge in your head, it was a waste of a life, which is probably a pretty extreme view to take. But, you know, especially if you have a, a special piece of knowledge or maybe an insight that was hard won, you know, documenting that in a way that not just your kids and grandkids, but really generations will will know and learn from, that's how we advance. And so if you have something that took you 10 years to figure out, there's a good chance that others are never going to spend that 10 years to figure out that same thing. And so documenting it and doing it in a way, the way you kind of explain it is like, it doesn't have, the way I interpret it is, it doesn't have to be like the most perfect version of the finished product, but like you learn something, document it and go and keep learning. Completely. Yeah. It's not a end of life project. It's a work in progress, which is a reflection of each of us as humans. And it's a reflection of us as a collective, as humanity. Humanity is a work in progress. And there, there's something like, especially now we're in this AI era, like we're not robots, we're not machines, which means we're not perfect. And there's this desire to be perfect, to look polished, you know, with our online personas, with how we dress when we go out to dinner, with the book that we publish. But like to really be human is to be imperfect <laughs> and to let that reflect through our presence online or presence in print is just a way to be more authentic. So there are a few kunalisms I wrote down ahead of this conversation that I wanted to fly by you. And some of did these- you get them from, Did you get them from me or my bot? I, I didn't, and I want to talk about your bot. I didn't get it from your bot. I, I, I don't even need AI when it comes to you because I remember so much. So let me, but you know what? But I promise in this conversation, we will actually talk about your bot and maybe we'll do some live botting. But a few things you've said to me that I thought were, were uh, kind of funny. So you one time told me that you wanted to get on a plane and fly somewhere without knowing where you were going or how long you were going to be there. And I think, I can't remember if you said you wanted to bring your passport or have no passport, but can you talk about this fantasy that you have? So my, my, my book, How to Live, has all these experiments and how I went houseless, how I went without buying stuff, and I did all these crazy experiments. But the ultimate crazy experiment that I, I didn't do until I realized I did was like, I thought, how can I challenge myself to the extreme? And I had this, this thought one day of, let me get on a plane with no stuff, with no identity, and, and literally say goodbye. Say goodbye to my life and my family and my friends and everything and start from scratch. And that feels like the ultimate challenge. And you know, fast forward many, many years later, I moved to Portugal. I moved to Portugal on three days notice. I didn't know a single person, didn't know the language. And I didn't realize like how similar my actual move to Portugal experiment was to this idea that clearly I've been talking about for a very long time. The difference was I did not close the door on my previous life. The difference was I did take a credit card with me. And I started from scratch in a bunch of areas, but I did not start fully from scratch. But it still is a very gutsy move to move to a place and like knowing, and I'm, I'm actually curious if you knew this, but feeling internally, hey, I'm going to be fine. As you said, you had a credit card and you had, you know, stuff, a, a few things, I'm sure. But most people would, wouldn't think to move three blocks away from where they live, never mind <laughs> halfway across the world. So what was that experience like? I didn't give myself time to think about it, which is helpful sometimes. I, if I thought about it, I'd convince myself to not do it. If we think about something too much, then we'll find the reasons not to do it. I had an Airbnb booked like 
that day and then just started airbnb around the city for a few weeks. I realized that being a vegetarian who doesn't smoke or drink alcohol or drink coffee and living in Portugal makes zero sense. <laughs> my my second day I did a walking tour one of those free walking tours and I was like oh did I pick the wrong place like am I going to fit in here and fast forward a couple of years later I've done fine you figured it uh, out but it really yeah it really took this this one way ticket mindset and yeah I, I literally came on a one way ticket but figuratively as well I went in like thinking this is it I don't know what it's going to be but I'm going to figure it out I'm going to love the challenge and the adventure and embrace that. And why Portugal? You know, we're Canadian. We've done so many winters. Um, <laughs> I'd lived in New York for like 10 years. So I wasn't really inspired by America for the obvious reasons. Asia felt too far. So Europe was, was speaking to me from a lifestyle perspective. London was actually my second choice. And I... I'm actually going to London in a couple of days. I go to London actually every few weeks. So London is still uh, occupies a, a big part of my heart and my, my life. However, uh, Lisbon won because of the weather and the lifestyle and the relaxed nature and being close to the ocean. And yeah, I, I picked well. Like I, most things, I, I came before it was cool. And so many foreigners and expats have, have come here and Portugal's on the map now and I'm really glad to be here and feel settled. And, and I will say, like, you you moved to Portugal like most people couldn't do. So you moved to Portugal, and I remember seeing on social media, I, I had seen that you moved to, to Portugal, and I was talking to a mutual friend, and she was like, oh, yeah, he's doing great there. And then I checked you out on Instagram, and you were hosting, like, 500-person meetups, and you were, like, the mayor of Portugal. So you, you kind of brought the normal Kunal swagger along with you. You didn't leave that at home. Yeah, yeah. My friends call me the expat mayor of Lisbon. <laughs> and I had this experience like the week before last. Uh, and that's where I realized like, okay, something's shifted. I walked into a restaurant and it had this like second area where the people I were meeting were sitting. John, I knew every single person sitting at every table. <laughs> and it felt like my wedding. I was just going around like hugging and giving like the European, you know, cheek to cheek kisses to every single person. I didn't even eat dinner. I was just wow doing the thing. Well, they, so they yeah. should have given you a free meal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, we got to talk about kunalgpt.com, which so in the last three four minutes as we've been talking, I, I've just been punching some questions in. Curious to see if your answers will be the same as your GPT version. So I asked Kunal GPT, where do you want to be in 10 years? What's your next book going to be called? And it gave me some actually really like solid answers. So let's just, before we talk about the, these questions and answers, like what is this? Why did you make it? How did you make it? I'm intimidated that I'm competing with myself now or my AI representation of myself. I don't usually get intimidated, but I'm getting intimidated like, by myself. I, I'm into AI. I was there at the start of the mobile wave when the iPhone was launched and benefited from it. And this feels like it's going to be big. And I've been feeling that for, for over a year, even pre, pre chat GPT moment. Um, so I'm in love with the technology. So I've been playing a lot with it. I've started a few companies, you know, based on it. I started building community based on AI here in Lisbon. So I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in the AI game. I have a newsletter called Pivot Five, which is five stories a day covering the AI, you know, news cycle. So I've I've, I've been doing a lot. 
And then naturally I started thinking like, okay, hey, what would it look like for all of us to have our own, you know, AI chatbots the way we're using ChatGPT. So with one of my teams, we built uh, on top of OpenAI's APIs, we built a chat interface and that's canalgpt.com. We've trained it on my writing for the last 10 years because I've been writing my blog. We've trained it on all my books, including the drafts of two books that are not yet published. And that's it. So that's that's what we've given it, which is quite a bit of, of, of content. It's not connected to the internet. So like you can't ask it to do math or the weather or things like that. So it's, mm. it's very much a conversation with me. I do have it as a WhatsApp bot that I gave to my parents and they've started talking, talking to it. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah, I'm getting at least once a day, a friend send me a screenshot of them talking to me. <laughs> So, usually like a thanks, thanks for the advice. So thanks for the perspective. Oh man. Oh man. So what is it? And sorry, is this built on chat GPT? It is. Yeah. It is. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So, all right. So I, I asked it, what's your next book going to be called? It said chief everything officer. I said, where do you want to be in 10 years? I want to be a more enlightened version of myself. Uh, so this thing like kind of sounds like you and the answers are longer you know I, I said how do you feel about your experience with polar gave me sort of a long thoughtful answer is there like a practical use for this that you see or is this more just kind of fun for now so it's baked into my books so it's it's a companion to the book so you're you're reading one of my books you're hearing about my stories and then you have questions for me as an author and you can literally pull out your phone, you can scan a QR code or type in the URL and ask me the questions. And it's trained on the books, the research that went into the books. And we have the data, like it's, it's being used hundreds of times a day right now. So people are having simultaneous conversations with me. It's very efficient for me, which I appreciate because I value my time you know, greatly as we all do. But it's a way to explore the author's mind without using the author's time. And this is version one, like it's only going to get better. Like a year from now, you know, maybe it's voice-based versus just text-based and, you know, it's probably evolved even more. And why is this free? I mean, I understand it's free because you, you just, it's an experiment, I guess, but like, I almost feel like this is super valuable. I think so. Yeah. I don't need to make money, but I do need to express myself and, and share and I need to help people. So I think in the future we will pay for some people's chatbots. I don't know if It'll be mine. But the ability to converse with somebody who's knowledgeable on a specific topic that one's interested in and do it in real time, I think is, is hugely valuable and not something that's in our day-to-day culture. We ask Google or we ask ChatGPT, but imagine going a level deeper and being able to talk to a doctor, being able to talk to a scientist, being able to talk to an entrepreneur in, in your industry being able to talk to a career coach, a guidance counselor, your high school student, like whatever it is, like, why not? I mean, that's like, you know, when you say it like that, it's incredibly transformative because just think about it for a second here. So, you know, how much time do you, how, how long in advance do you make an appointment? And how much money do you pay to have that consultation with that lawyer who specializes in insurance law? You know, you just take all the textbooks that that person studied and recordings and transcripts of every you know case they've ever read or written, and now all of a sudden it's just packaged up and and the computer. The only question there would be how accurate is the AI to what this person would say? But at a certain point, it's going to be pretty accurate, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd alter the question to like how useful is it to the person asking the question? So well, wouldn't it be the same usefulness as them making the appointment and paying the money? 
it's probably gonna be more useful. That's where I'm going. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, will be more useful than the than the human. Uh, like, I'll give you an example. So, like, my recent I had a recent blog post called "How to Host." It was after I hosted a million, you know, web summit events, and it, it came to me in the shower as it usually does. I'm like, okay, yeah, like, and I'm like in the shower. I'm like, hosting is like a metaphor for life. It's like being vulnerable. It's connection. It's asking for help. It's opening up my space. So there are all these metaphors for life. And then I went to Canal GPT and I just put the question, why do you host parties? I mean, you could have it in two now. I'm going to do it right now. And, and the response it gave me was hosting is a metaphor for life. It's a way for me to expose myself. It's a way for me to connect people with each other. It's a way for me to build community. I asked, why do you host parties? I didn't go down this philosophical route or I didn't tell it I was writing a blog post. And it came up with a few things that I hadn't thought of myself. But when it said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. I agree with that. I'm including that in my reflection. So it's, yeah, it's crazy that it's that, and this is just version one, but it's that in tune with how I naturally think. It's therapy. It's it, like this is what a therapist would get out of you in that, in that moment of self-reflection. Completely. Yeah, I, I hope we all have AI therapists, like every <laughs> single person. Uh, on the planet. That's going to be the, the headline of this podcast. I hope we all have AI therapists. So let me let me ask you this. Uh, one, one more AI question, and then I want to get to the health side of your life. Let's just assume for a second that in 10 years, or maybe a lot sooner, knowledge itself is the commodity. We, every piece of knowledge from Einstein to Shakespeare to Bill Gates to Warren Buffett, it's all just available to anybody. What becomes the value of a person? What, what, what are we as a society going to do to make our people valuable? I think it's an attitude. It's attitude. And I think it's always been like the people who have knowledge have the attitude to go acquire that knowledge and go apply that knowledge, but it's attitude. And I, I really appreciate now being in Europe for, for two and a half years and being exposed to people from so many different cultures, because it's also people with different attitudes, the attitude towards politics, towards religion, towards work, towards capitalism, socialism, so I think attitude and someone's, the way they think, um, actually my, my editor, the first, like, I'm like, okay, I want to call the book how to live. And she's like, no, actually you should call it how to think. And I didn't, I didn't like the way that sounded, but that's really what the book is about. It's really about how to think. And that's what I mean by attitude. It's, it's what's the approach somebody takes to solving problems. Yeah, what's the approach? And also, what's the, what's, you said attitude, but it's also, what's the drive? What's the ambition? There's a lot of people, man. And I, I talk to them like, it's funny. I, I will say, I spend probably five to 10 hours a week running my business. And the rest of my working time, my 30, 40, 50 hours is spent on other sort of business slash investment pursuits. And a lot of people will say, well, why don't you just spend that time kind of watching Netflix or you know, hanging out or, <laughs> you know, playing sports. Like, and the reality is, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I, I want to grow. I want to advance. And a lot of people don't have that. I think I use this analogy. There's those in the stands watching the game. And then there are those who are getting on the field and playing the game. And, you know, this is going to sound harsh, but like, when you watch the game, when you're sitting at home behind the big screen or you're in the stands, you're, you're basically watching somebody else live out their dream. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like how you said that you're watching someone else live out their dream because they want to be there. And you're rooting for them and you're excited for them, but don't you want to be rooting for yourself and excited for you? Well, well put, well put. 
when did you get into the, I'm going to be the ultimate supplement? Uh, I don't know if it's supplements <laughs> or, or shakes or what you're doing, but give me your health routine. Let me hear it. Yeah, people call me like the the Canadian or the Indian Brian Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, so I, I did have some health issues. Are you going issues. for Brian Johnson? Is that, is that where you're going? Uh, halfway maybe. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, so I, I did have some health issues. They weren't serious. They didn't involve hospitals, but they did affect my adrenals and immune system and respiratory. I basically felt like I had COVID for nine months and I got COVID like in that time and that felt mild. So hmm. that's kind of the level of the symptoms, but that, that triggered me to treat my physical health very differently and start to pay attention to it where I treated it like a black box. Like it's almost like, Google search or ChatGPT. I just like put stuff in and get stuff out and don't really know how it works. Don't really care how it works. It's just useful to me. But then that, that treated me like I need to actually understand how it works. I don't fully understand how search engines work or AI systems work, but I'm starting to understand more about how my body works and the different organs in my body. And I've had a lot of help, a lot of books, a lot of specialists, a lot of tests, a lot of data. And I'm the engineer and I like to optimize. And then I started to, to really get into biohacking. So I collect a lot of data on myself um, from my Oura Ring to my smart scale to very frequent, too frequent blood tests. And I've tested hair loss and hormones and gut and allergies. And I've tested everything. Lungs you test this breathing. yourself or you go to a clinic and do it? I have been using a variety of specialists so I've kind of built it myself because I haven't found the clinics that do it, but I know they exist and I'm going to do that next. So I've collected a lot of data. The diagnosis part's actually been tough. I think that's where AI can play a role in terms of making sense of the data. And then like my book, How to Live, like I just have started to experiment, <laughs> start to experiment on my body. Like what happens if I change my diet in this way, change my sleep in this way, change my supplements in this way, change my exercise in this way. And uh, I've been learning a lot. And my physical health, my energy has improved greatly. I do feel I've been reverse aging. I feel younger. I feel stronger. I feel healthier physically. I don't feel the ailments and symptoms that I've felt for most of my adult life. And it's a result of just paying attention and caring and being intentional about it. So how, how much of a guinea pig will you treat yourself? Will you try something that you don't know what it's going to do or you're not, or you're not going that far? You know, I was at a longevity clinic two weeks ago and they're like, would you inject yourself? I'm like, sure, why not? So they gave me a vial of, of NAD and needles and I haven't used it yet. So I'm like, okay, I guess that's, that's an edge. I'm not willing to put a needle in myself, but if a nurse does it, it's fine. You know, I did a cold shower this morning and that's fine for me now where a year ago it wasn't. Are you fully into the cold showers? Have you, have you done the plunge yet? Do you have a plunge in your, in your apartment? I've been looking for a home one. They're a little bulky and dangerous <laughs> in an apartment. There's risks of flooding and all that stuff and whatnot. But no, I, I do plunges. And the ocean in Portugal is, is actually quite cold. The water's cold in the Atlantic. So I, I go in the ocean, even in the wintertime. Uh, and I just got these red light panels. So those are set up on my wall. So I've been doing that 15, 20 minutes a day. Um, do IV drips once a month. Right now, I'm taking like 25 or 30 supplements a day. Oh my God. Um, what, what, what are the supplements? What do you take? <laughs> I, I'm convinced on somebody like me, it's mainly a placebo effect. And I'm aware of it. And it still works. Because the act of setting up the supplements, the act of taking it every day is me signaling to myself, I'm taking care of myself. And that makes me feel 
healthier and stronger and better. Yeah, that that was so. You know, I there's a lot of a lot of people that are biohacking and to different degrees. And the question I have is, and you kind of just answered it on the on the supplement side, is like it's great. It's it doesn't. It's not going to harm you, or un, unless you do something kind of you know, unless you inject yourself with some crazy hazardous material. But how much of it is just it's an activity that I enjoy doing, just like playing sports or whatever, versus hey, I actually believe that this is enhancing my life, enhancing my health giving me more years to live. Where, where do you come out on that? Oh, it's definitely a hobby. It's definitely a hobby. And it's a curiosity. And the odd day or a trip, I'll forget to take them. And I won't even remember that I forgot to take them. So I'm not, I'm not attached to it. I, I think a lot about health spend you know, versus lifespan. So like the quality of, of, of life versus the quantity of life. And I think just to... Right now, I'm in a fitness phase, like I'm working out or yoga or doing something every day. So I feel good. My body fat's gone down. My muscle mass has gone up. So like, it's it's nice to feel good in one's body. Yeah, it is nice to feel good in one's body. And, and as I, I can't, when I look at you, I, I still see the same 21-year-old Kunal who's like, uh, you know, hosting us for a party in his office. <laughs> Well, this is awesome, man. What's uh, where should people go? What what should we know about you, author, entrepreneur, investor? What, where do you want people to go? How to live is my blog. Feel free to give me your email address, and you'll get an email from me every Sunday with the reflection. Or and or go check out my book, How to Live. You can find it on Amazon, Kindle, Audible, as well as as, as paperback. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Instagram. Would love to hear what you think of the book. And can people go to the AI? KunalGPT.com. Yes. Awesome. Kunal, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or a review on Apple and Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. 